Welcome to Chase Oaks. We're so glad that you're with us today. And happy post-Thanksgiving weekend. What a crazy, crazy year this has been. I can't believe we're at the end of November. I don't know what it's been like for you these past several months, but there were moments for me that this picture perfectly captures how I was feeling towards my family as we quarantined together. Um, one day during an all-staff meeting, I thought that I would try something, one of the benefits of being in quarantine, because there are some good, good things about being in quarantine. Like, for example, you can wear business-appropriate clothes on top and pajama bottoms, and no one would know the difference on a Zoom call. Or even better, if there's a lot of people on the meeting during the Zoom call, then you don't even have to turn your camera on. So again, one day during staff meeting, I thought I would try this. Um, during an all-staff meeting, there are 80-some-odd people on the call, and so I knew I wouldn't have to turn my video camera on, and I thought this would be a perfect opportunity for me to pamper myself with a face mask. I was telling this story to someone else, and they're like, what's the big deal about wearing a face mask? Because they were picturing the typical kind of face mask that we wear when we go out in public, but that's not the type of face mask that I had on. I was wearing a beauty face mask, which looks completely different. So I put the face mask on and signed on to the meeting, only to realize that I hadn't turned my video off. And so as I'm scrambling to turn off my camera, you know, the longer, like the more you're scrambling to do something, the longer it takes. And so it felt like the camera was on my face forever. But finally, I was able to turn my camera off, and I had maybe like 15 seconds where I thought, maybe nobody saw me, like maybe it's okay. And then Jeremy LeBlanc, our Sloan Creek campus pastor, texted us, texted me, and said, please tell me that was you with a face mask on. <laughs> so I knew I had been caught, and there was no getting out of it, and so I texted him back this picture. I can laugh about it now, but at the time, I was mortified. I was so embarrassed to be caught with a face mask on, I just wanted to crawl into a hole. We've probably all had moments or experiences where we felt exposed. Today, we're going to look at a passage in the Bible where this happens to a woman, and we're going to see how she responds in her interaction with Jesus. We'll be looking at the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus had been teaching in Judea, and the religious leaders were starting to become jealous of his popularity. And so we pick up the story in verse 3. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. So just to give you some context about this passage, there is extreme racial animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. So when verse 4 says that Jesus had to go to, through Samaria, that's actually not true. In fact, Jews actively avoided going through Samaria because of their hatred for the Samaritans. A better understanding of verse 4 would be Jesus was compelled to go through Samaria. There was a mission and a purpose for him to go there. Another thing about the culture during this time was that men and women didn't speak to each other in public if they didn't know each other. So it was an unusual thing that Jesus was starting a conversation with this woman. And lastly, drawing water from the well was a communal activity that was done early in the morning around 6 a.m., 
So it meant something that this woman was at the well at noon, the hottest part of the day, by herself. So when Jesus asked her for water, he's not trying to be demanding. He's extending himself and reaching across racial barriers and gender barriers and social barriers. He's reaching out to someone completely different from himself. Let's continue the story in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verses 4 to 8 show us that Jesus is really extending himself to the Samaritan woman, and this probably confuses and shocks her. But verse 10 gives us further insight into the heart of Jesus. What is the gift that Jesus is offering? The living water that Jesus is talking about. Because it's obviously not just water from the well. Author Tim Keller describes it this way. Living water is eternal life. It's the assurance and experience of God's love, forgiveness, and presence and grace. Jesus wants this woman to understand the gospel message, that a life-changing relationship with him is a gift. It's something that's freely given to everyone. This gift isn't just for the people who have their lives together. It's not something that we earn. It's made available purely because of God's grace and love towards us. But the woman isn't fully understanding this yet. And so we continue in verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, also, as did also his son and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're, you, are right, you are with right now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now we understand why this woman is at the well alone in the middle of the day. It's because she's had five husbands, and the man that she's currently living with is not her husband. So she's a social outcast. We don't actually know why she's had five husbands. Did they die? Did they divorce her? We're not actually told how this has happened in her life. But what we do know is that culturally during that time, a man could leave or divorce his wife for almost any small reason. But a woman didn't have those same rights. So she's already had five husbands and is living with a man who is not her husband. This story isn't about promiscuity. It's about heartbreak and disappointment and feelings of worthlessness. Jesus knows that in order for the woman to understand what he's offering to her, for her to understand this thing that's going to satisfy the deepest desire of her soul, she first needs to acknowledge that she's already looking for this thing. Jesus is pointing out the fact that the woman is already looking for security and satisfaction and self-worth through her relationships. She's already looking for that from other men. 
So Jesus is telling her that the path to living water is through confronting her issues, dealing with her husband. I think it would be easy for us to develop an us versus them mentality here. To think, well, yeah, if you've been married five times, then you're like the Samaritan woman. Or if you're an alcoholic, or if you have a porn addiction, then you're like the Samaritan woman. This story is for them. It's for those people. But the truth is that all of us have a husband issue. We all have to fight that temptation to find satisfaction in something other than Jesus. So the Samaritan woman's story is my story. Maybe it's the Samaritan woman and I don't have the same circumstances, but our core issue is exactly the same. The thing that Jesus is pointing out to her is that she's constantly looking to men and relationships to satisfy her. She's basically looking to something other than Jesus to satisfy the deepest desire in her soul. And that issue is the same issue that I still struggle with today. Our family moved to Texas about seven years ago, and we moved here for my husband's job. So we didn't know anyone, and we had to rebuild our community and make new friends. So during those first couple of years, I was super lonely and bored, and so I decided to pick up a hobby. I decided to start hand lettering, and so whenever I talk about hand lettering to people, they always kind of give me this blank look, like, what, handwriting? It's kind of difficult to describe what hand lettering is, but it would, like, calligraphy would be included in that, or it's basically any type of font that doesn't look like it's computer generated. So people hand letter, like, signs that you might see at a home goods store, or cards, or wall art. So I got into this hobby, and I started an Instagram account. Mostly because Instagram was a good source of inspiration for me, and also it was a certain level of accountability for me to like, constantly post my work and track my progress. So when I first started, I had this pipe dream, and I thought 25,000 followers would be the magic number. That would be a marker of success. Well, last summer, my account actually got to 24,970. And I'm kind of embarrassed that I know that actual number. But here's the reason why I know it. Because I was pouring all this energy and effort into Instagram. And with that came some recognition and validation. Companies were sending me products to try and test out. And other companies were paying me for posts with using their products. Other artists wanted to work together and collaborate. And the app TikTok reached out to me and offered to pay me to create content for their platform. As all of this was happening, I was quickly approaching that 25,000 magic number. Even better opportunities were looming on the horizon. Everything looked so positive. But emotionally, I felt completely trapped. Like I was suffocating. I was miserable. I couldn't understand why I was feeling this way. I was achieving some of the goals that I had set out at the beginning of my hand lettering journey. I was receiving recognition and affirmation. But I was so unhappy. So I tried taking a break from Instagram. I talked to other artists. I asked my community if I should quit Instagram. And no matter who I talked to or what I did, I couldn't get clarity and I didn't have a sense of peace. Whenever I feel this way, this is a clear indicator to me that this is a topic I need to discuss with my counselor. So I went to go see Lee and I explained to him what was going on. And he immediately responded with, oh, hand lettering was like manna. 
And in that instant, I had such clarity about what was happening for me internally. Let me give you a quick summary about manna. We find in Exodus 16, after the Israelites had escaped from Egypt, they've crossed through the Red Sea, and they're wandering in the desert, and God provides food for them in the form of manna, which was kind of like a cracker, but it was an unknown food to the Israelites. So manna literally means, what is it? And this is what the Israelites called that food. So each day, manna would appear on the ground, and the Israelites were instructed to go and collect just what they needed for that day. But some of them tried to horn the manna or take extra just in case. But they would find that it would rot and spoil. Instead of trusting that God would provide manna for them every single day, they tried to take control of the situation and started putting their hope and trust in manna. They were probably thinking, well, if I could just find more manna, then I would be okay. I have to work hard to get more manna because you never know. What if it doesn't appear there tomorrow? So instead of putting their hope and trust in God, they tried to find security through the manna itself and taking control of the situation. This is exactly what I was doing with my hand lettering. God had given me this creative gift and this outlet to explore and to enjoy. But instead of doing that, I took it and I twisted it just a little bit. And I started putting my self-worth and my value in the numbers and the money that this was generating. And then, during my counseling session, Lee asked me, Cindy, what happens when you reach 25,000? Is that it? You've achieved your dream? And we both knew that once I hit 25,000, the goalposts would be moved, and there would be a new magic number. And I would constantly be chasing my self-worth and my value, and I would never be satisfied. Before I went to Seedly, I was so focused on my issue with Instagram and the numbers, but I was completely missing my core issue. There's nothing inherently wrong with social media or Instagram. There's nothing wrong with setting goals and having big dreams and achieving them. The issue arises when anything other than Jesus becomes the source of our satisfaction or validation. Can you relate to this? What's your husband to issue? Where are you looking for validation or meaning or satisfaction? What's the thing or person that you think is going to satisfy your deepest need? Is it in your relationships, your appearance, or your job, or your kids, or money? These are all inherently good things. But when our perspective on them gets a little bit skewed, or when we give them just a little bit more power over us than we should, we don't even realize it's happening, but then somehow it's become the source of our self-worth and our satisfaction. I'm pretty sure that if I hadn't been in a counseling session, if I was confronted about the fact that I was giving Instagram and numbers and success too much power over me, I would have responded defensively. I would have probably tried to deflect or justify because I wouldn't want to be confronted with that sin. Because confronting sin is always painful and embarrassing, and generally I go out of my way to avoid painful things. This is the same thing that the Samaritan woman does, 
And we see this in verses 19 to 24. Jesus has just revealed to her that he knows about the five husbands, that he knows about her current living situation. And instead of responding to that, she starts talking to him about theology. Here again, we see the gracious and compassionate heart of Jesus. Remember, men and women didn't even talk in public if they didn't know each other. And women for sure did not talk to religious leaders about theology. But Jesus graciously lets her guide the conversation, and he continues to engage her. So she begins to ask Jesus about the physical location of where people should worship. Just a completely different topic, right? Because she's deflecting. She's trying to avoid talking about her own issues. And so they talk about where people should worship. And then in verse 25, she says, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the first of Jesus' I am statements in the book of John. The first time that Jesus says, I am God. The first time that Jesus declares his true identity isn't to the religious leaders. In chapter 3, he had just talked to Nicodemus who was a religious leader. He was part of the Jewish ruling council. He would have been considered Jewish elite. But Jesus doesn't make an I am statement to Nicodemus. Jesus is saying to the least of the least, a Samaritan, a woman, a woman living in shame who's shunned by her community, to this woman, he says, the one that you've been waiting for, I am he. And as the Messiah He's offering the gift of living water to this woman who hasn't even repented yet. She hasn't made any decisions. She hasn't changed her life situation. Jesus knows that her past is messed up. Her current reality is messed up. But even in the midst of that, he offers her the free, unmerited gift of living water, of eternal life. So after the woman hears this, verse 28 tells us, Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. This woman, who was isolated and disconnected, is then able to reach out and reconnect with the people. Because verse 29 says that she left her water jug and went and told the people, the same people that she was trying to avoid by coming to the, to the well at noon by herself. To those people, she says, come, see a man who told me everything I did. The implication here is that the man told her everything that she had done, but loved her anyway, accepted her anyway, Because if he had just told her everything that she had done and that was it, that wouldn't be surprising to anybody in that town. Because everybody in that town knew what she had done. Everybody talked about the choices that she had made. The implication is that Jesus knew everything about her, but still loved her anyway. He knew all about her past, but saw value in her anyway. He knew she was currently living in sin, but wanted her anyway. This is what happens when we experience the life-changing love and grace of Jesus. When I fully realize 
how deeply I am known and loved and accepted by Jesus. It gives me the freedom to stop living in my own head, to stop listening to the voices of, self, of self-condemnation or shame. I'm able to bring my sins in the light. And as I do that, it has less power over me. Then I can connect with people in spite of my brokenness. And as I realize that I am accepted and loved, it also frees me from judging others. Because I'm so aware of my own sin and so aware of the forgiveness that, I, that I've experienced. Who am I to judge other people? Will you let relationships or career determine your self-worth? Why let something shallow like Instagram numbers and followers determine, determine my self-worth and value? Oh, you're addicted to something? Well, Instagram was the first thing that I checked in the morning when I woke up, and the last thing I looked at before I, go, I went to bed. And that was after checking it obsessively all day long. I understand addictive behavior. So maybe our circumstances look differently, but our core issue is exactly the same. So what does the Samaritan woman's story tell us about loving others? How does it help us understand why we should love others the way Jesus loves? Because the same love that Jesus showed to that Samaritan woman is the love that he has shown and continues to show to you and me. Jesus goes out of his way to interact with somebody. He extends himself to her and he engages her in conversation. He knows everything about her, but he accepts her anyway. Before she leaves the man that she's living with, before she gets her life right, before she's done anything to deserve it, Jesus offers her the gift of relationship with him. You and I are the Samaritan woman. We all have husband issues, things that distract us and things that we think will satisfy us. And when we lose sight of what's true, Jesus comes and he pursues us. He doesn't just come for us one time when we make the decision to become Christ followers. He relentlessly pursues us and invites us into deeper relationship with him. Jesus was saying, I am he. I am the one that can satisfy the deepest desire of your heart. He was saying that to me at 10 when I accepted Christ. And he's still saying that to me now, 37 years later. You and I are called to love others because we have been loved by Jesus first. And we love others the way that we have been loved, by leading with grace and compassion, by going out of our way to build relationship with others. And instead of focusing on their bad choices or their circumstances, we constantly point them back to Christ. What would it look like if you and I were radically aware of how deeply we are loved by Jesus and then interacted with others from the overflow of that place? How would that change our conversations and our interactions with people who are different from us? How would that impact our homes and our schools and our workplaces and our communities if we loved others the way that Jesus loves us? But... Maybe you're feeling like, I'm not really experiencing that living water for myself. I'm stuck in the part of the story where the Samaritan woman is at the well by herself. So if you want to talk to or pray with somebody about this, we have people online who would love to pray with you. And especially in this season, 
in the middle of a pandemic, I can't think of a time where collectively our mental and emotional health has been challenged and pushed to its limits more. So if you have a specific need or you need a support group, we can help you with that. You can reach out to us on our care page, on our website, and it lists all of the services that we offer through our pastoral care ministry. Or maybe you're feeling like you need a little bit more structured help. Listen, I'm married to a pastor. I have male and female pastor friends. I have a great circle of friends around me. But even then, I need more help to help process my thoughts and feelings. I've been in counseling for about three years. And the frequency and intensity of the sessions have varied over those three years. But I can confidently say that it has changed my life. I don't mean in like a, I upgraded my phone and it changed my life kind of way. I mean, it literally changed the trajectory of my life. Lee, my therapist, describes counseling like this. I'm bringing in puzzle pieces, and together we turn those pieces over, and we figure out what goes where so that I can see the bigger picture. So instead of continually getting stuck in the same thought patterns, responding to conflicts and issues in the same unhealthy ways, I'm so much more self-aware and equipped to deal with those situations. So instead of just looking at one puzzle piece and trying to figure out what it is, I can see the bigger picture. So if you reach out to us on our care page, we can help you make an appointment with a counselor through our church. There are virtual options, there are in-person options, and that initial assessment is free. So we try to make it as easy as possible for you to connect with a counselor who believes what we believe about Jesus in our church's DNA. So in this season, where so many of us are feeling disconnected and divided, what kind of impact could we make if we decided to love others the way Jesus loves us? If we reached across religious barriers and gender barriers and political barriers, my hope for each of us is that we will be profoundly aware of how deeply we are known and accepted and loved by Jesus And then we love others in the same way. Let me pray for us. God, we are so grateful that you go out of your way to pursue us. That you extend grace and love to all of us. The least, the weak, the broken. Thank you for meeting us in our failures. And for the fact that the way to getting into deep relationship with you is through our brokenness. God, help us to be transformed by the fact that we are deeply known and loved and accepted by you. And with that knowledge, help us to love others. Let our interactions with others be a tangible example of your grace and your goodness to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.